Our text this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to the end. This is God's eternal word, always true, it cannot be broken. Let us listen. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not, cannot remain hidden. Amen. You may be seated. As I said when we, when we were starting our worship this morning, the sermon tastes good, but it's messy. I've got a lot to say, and I'm not still quite sure how I want to say it, but I trust that, that uh, you will... Uh, be able to feed on what God has prepared for you this morning. My text for today is part of a larger section in this book of 1 Timothy that deals with the way people should be honored in the household of God. I am taking the, uh, these sections out of sequence because of our holiday that's coming up next week and going to be addressing Christian family relations on Mother's Day. And I thought, well, what's a good gift to give to your mother? Well, if, if she's available, if you have a mother and she's available, bring her to church. If you don't, then bring someone who's like a mother to you to church, and that would be a great, a great gift to your mother. If you're a mother, then you can bring your children to church, and I think you'll be blessed by the message. The church has been called a household of faith. We've seen that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon... But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to believe, I'm sorry, to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul equates the church of the living God. Church means ecclesia, called out. It's a people, not a building. It's an experience with God, not an event on Sunday. The people of God called, gathered, identified by faith, by baptism, by associating with leadership who carry on and, and teach the, the, the doctrines of the apostles as we do here. The church of the living God, which is to say the people that were dead but are now alive, had been gathered together in community together. The church of the living God, he says, is a family. That's what the apostle Paul says. Paul means, then, that family ties among those who believe in Jesus are determined by faith 
and not by blood and physical generation. Jesus himself points out how important it is to think this way when he is asked, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And he says, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God. So Jesus himself brings about this idea of family relations. And in fact, he says in some of the more harsh words of the New Testament, he says, unless you hate your mother and your brother or your father, your sister, you can have no part with me. And by that, he's using an ancient rabbinical form of exaggeration. He's not saying hate your parents, but he's saying the love for Jesus, by comparison, needs to be so much greater for me and the Christian family that in some senses, in a story sense, it might look like hatred. As a family, then, as a household, there are different relationships that we enjoy, and the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms, which are part of the, the infrastructure of this church, when it describes what, is about, what the fifth commandment is about, which says, honor your father and mother, it explains that the fifth commandment is not just about physical relations, but anyone with whom you have a relationship, using old language, it says, as an inferior, as a superior, or as an equal. So we all have these different relations. You can be superior to someone, again, not as if you're a better human being, but because you have more education, even if you're younger. You can be superior because of age or accomplishments. You can be superior for a number of different reasons because of rank, as in the military, a superior officer. So we all have these relations in the church, in the family. We have relations of inferiors, people that are, are lesser in age, people that are lesser in rank, people that are lesser in responsibility or in life experiences. We have all of these things. We have equals, and there's a profound equality in the church that perhaps isn't understood as well as it could be at times. So this idea of honor means that no matter where you are in the org chart, right, there's honor to be shown, honor downstream, honor upstream, honor across the way, honor. And that's what this chapter in the Bible is talking about, honoring all relationships no matter where you are, honoring teachers, honoring police officers, honoring judges, mayors, honoring older but non-related neighbors, honoring young people with parent-like gifts and parent-like care, honoring those who have more experiences even if they're younger than you are with the dignity that that comes with, and even honoring pastors. People have strong reactions when they find out that the Christian faith is about joining a family. Here are a couple that I've heard. Maybe these relate to you. Some think this sounds like a mafia. Um, I can't imitate it very well, but, you know, the, the Godfather's going to do something for you. Very soon he will ask you to do something for him. In the very near future. Another idea might be this idea of family. I already have one dysfunctional family. Why on earth do I need another? 
Or family, for some people, sounds a lot like cult. A religious family doesn't sound safe to some people. It sounds dangerous. So, yeah, I think people have trouble. There, there are those, though, who, for various reasons, are excited about this idea. You know, I've never had a family. And the thought that I get to have a family because of faith in Jesus is an encouragement. It's, it's downright inspirational. I think it's sad that there is more negative than positive press out there today about the church as a spiritual family, whether it's clergy abuse, um, emotional abuse from fellow parishioners, judgmental, strict, overly strict, harsh, critical, unless you're like me, you can't come in here. I remember candidating for a, a job as an assistant pastor several years ago, and it was in an unnamed location in the southeastern part of the United States. And I was asked about whether people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds ever came to the church. And the answer by one of the elders was given to me, they come, they just don't come back. And so you can say that you're open as a family to visitors, but are you open? So families have these, these unwritten codes, don't they? how we do it at our house. Do you take your shoes off when you come into your house or not? People tend to be sort of one or the other. And if someone doesn't and tracks mud all over the carpet or whatever, how are they welcomed back? But I think to be fair on the other side, it's also true that people come to church expecting, sometimes expecting too much, expecting to get and not to give or trying to give a little bit, and then when that doesn't work, they stop giving. They come into the family of faith not with an attitude of, I can do that, or how can I help, but instead, what have you done for me lately? So I think we need to recover a sense of honor in the church. Honor. A sense of honor in the household of faith. I wonder what it would look like. I think there would be honor shown in all directions more than there is now. Honor shown to those in authority. Honor shown to those that are, that are in submission in various roles and capacity. So I'm, I'm giving you a, pre, a, a preview of some of the things that I'm going to discuss next Sunday. But it also, I think, sets up very well this Sunday's sermon. I'm taking the, the passage out of sequence, as I mentioned and I'll be covering 1 through 16 next Sunday, which focuses on family relations and then really takes a microscope to an important category of person in the church, widows. But this Sunday, we're going to look at honor shown, honor that, is, that ought to be shown to leaders in the church. And so my sermon is called God's Plan for Church Leadership. I have an outline in your bulletin, and my first point is that the beginning of God's plan for church leadership is the gospel. No surprise here. If you've been listening to the sermons in, uh, in Timothy, you've heard me say again and again, Timothy isn't first and foremost a checklist of things that we need to get done, but it's a treatise that calls the leadership in Ephesus back to the basics, the ABCs. They had progressed too far down the alphabet. And Paul, through Timothy, was calling them back. Jesus came to save sinners. 
And so God's plan for leadership in the church begins with the gospel. You, you need, we need leaders that are there and that are content to not graduate to deeper and fuller and wider and higher and richer experiences because, in a sense, that actually denigrates the importance of the gospel. So here's, a, here's one of the passages that shows the importance of beginning with the gospel. If you look at verse 22 of my text, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands, that's a technical term. So there's a tradition in Presbyterian churches, and I'm not sure what the tradition is in other churches, but I, I've seen it practiced among Baptists and Lutherans, Catholics, and so forth, that when you have a new ordinand, a new person coming into the ministry, that hands are laid on the person. It's a, it's a symbol. So the symbol is this person is now, as I was told when I was in seminary, you're preparing to cross to the other side of the aisle. It's a symbol of, of setting someone apart, laying on of hands. Even when I prayed for John, I put my hand on his shoulder. Um, um, if you've ever been prayed for while being hugged or while someone is touching you, it's the ministry of touch that God loves us enough to give us relationships with real people that are involved in our, well, our welfare and our training. And so when you, when you lay hands on someone, it, it's a symbol of that human blessing. If you're a parent or uh, an aunt or an uncle, if you've ever prayed for a small child by putting your hand on that person, even just shaking someone's hand is meaningful and goes along with this. But laying on of hands is more than that as well. It's, it's, it's symbolic that the apostles' teaching is going to continue with this new pastor or with this new elder. And so that we see in the laying on of hands a chain. We believe in apostolic succession, provided that it really is succeeding the doctrine of the apostles. And so the hope is that by laying hands on a, on a new pastor, on a new elder, you're you're, you're indicating that he's been trained and that he understands and he believes the gospel that the apostles believed. So Timothy is told, don't do that too quickly because, because it, it, might, it might go in reverse and you might actually partake in that person's sins if he doesn't believe the gospel in a profound way. So be careful that you begin God's plan for church leadership is to begin with the gospel. So make sure that this person who is, who is entering into the ministry, whether it's an elder or a pastor, make sure that that person is grounded in the gospel. Don't do that too quickly. I thought of this as I was thinking about this and thinking, well, who do we lay hands on? Who, who typically comes? How do we know when someone's ready for, for being an elder? When I was in seminary, I started seminary at age 27, 26. I was 26 years old. Seems like a long time ago now. Um, I graduated seminary when I was 29. I was ordained. I had just turned 30. 
Now, what I've seen in most churches is, in terms of laying hands on too quickly, is that most churches are prepared to ordain a man to the teaching office of pastor, even if he's very young, like in his 20s. But most churches aren't prepared to ordain an elder that comes out from amongst the congregation until he's at least 40 or so, 45. I find that interesting. So we don't want to lay hands too quickly on a ruling elder, but we're willing to ordain this young teaching elder, a teacher, when he's still very young. Point to ponder. Another element of this that shows the importance of beginning with the gospel is here, if you look in our text, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well, rule well. Is a good leader in the church someone who doesn't lead with the gospel of Jesus Christ? No. God's plan for leadership in the church begins with ruling well. Have you been around someone who's overly critical, a leader, a teacher, a parent perhaps, where the first thing out of their mouth is always something that you need to fix? Is that ruling well? Is that the kind of leader that we need in the church, which is a family? Is that being a good mom or a good dad to treat your children that way? No. So God's plan for leadership in the church begins with the gospel because we need leaders, elders specifically, who will rule well. That is, who will take the power of the office, the authority of the office, and use it well. Not abuse it, not overuse it, but then not be passive either. Maybe you know, and this tends to be sins that guys tend to deal with, we either are over-the-top strong or we're out in the garage fixing the car because we'd rather not deal with it. And if you're normal, which is most of us, you're sometimes both. Sometimes you're over-the-top and sometimes you withdraw. And God wants us to rule well as men in the church. Not to withdraw, not to be passive, not to sit idly by while things just happen around us that are making the church, throwing the church into chaos. But then again, not to be such a stout, strong patriarch that we basically crush everything in our path. Good rule then, ruling well, I think, starts with self-rule. You don't want a ruler in the church who can't manage his own life who can't tell himself the promises of the gospel, who's too hard on himself, who's too easy on himself, who's either too tough on himself or too passive with himself. He needs to rule himself well, and we've seen that in these texts that we've been looking at in 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 4. Insert here the sermon I gave last week. If you, if you didn't hear it or if you'd like to, you can get it online. I have my manuscript there as well. I think this follows the love God, love your neighbor principle. Ruling well means first loving God with your whole heart. You want an elder in the church who rules well because he loves God. He's smitten with God. He, he recognizes that God's delight is his first delight and that, that sin is not ever something he does volu- voluntarily. In a sense, he's, he's, he's always doing sin uh, almost like he's in his 
worst self and not in his best self. And he relates to the call on his life as, as someone who delights to follow God, but yet someone who struggles to do that. And then having, having uh, accomplished good self-rule, an elder will then be wise and judicious as he engages in the lives of the people who are part of the Christian family. Sometimes it's good just to listen. You know, I heard uh, one teacher say that the best sermon in the world sometimes is me too. It's a short one. Sometimes an elder to rule well needs to recognize that confrontation is necessary. How do you confront? How do you like being confronted? I don't like it. Elders need to rule well. They need to know when to confront. I think part of ruling well in the family of God means believing that the family of God is a family of God. And guess what? You can't just walk into a family that you've never been... If you just show up one day after 15 years and say, okay, I'm the dad, I'm going to rule well now. I don't think so. You know, that you see in the movies and hear stories about people who have fathers that have been absent or fathers that have been disengaged, and all of a sudden they kind of get inspired. And, and then in the movie, the, the kid will say, you know, where have you been, Dad, for 20 years? How do you expect to just walk into my life, right? And you can hear the, the, the dramatic music playing in the background. So ruling well means recognizing that it depends on relationships. Family is about relationships. You can't just come into the church and expect to rule well if you don't have good relations with the people in the church. Do you know one another? Do your leaders know you? Good rule means courage. Timothy struggled with courage, and I won't get into this too much because it's in 2 Timothy more than anything, but Timothy struggled with fear. And so Paul was always infusing courage into Timothy and saying, be, it's sort of like what Moses said to Joshua, be strong, or the Lord, be strong and courageous. Joshua was struggling with some fear. Being a leader, I'm often afraid. In fact, I find my default pattern as a leader in the church is fear. What if they don't like me? What if they reject me? What if they leave? What if they quit? I ask myself all of these questions constantly. Fear. And God calls me to courage. To courage. Leading can be embarrassing. If you've ever been put in a position of leadership, it's easy to become embarrassed. I mentioned some of that last week. Leading can be lonely. You need to rule well. You need to be able to deal with loneliness at times. There are times, I don't think it's often, but there are times where a leader must go alone. Leading can be unpopular. And this whole idea of rule, it's very unpopular today. To rule well means you need to be comfortable with the fact that God indeed has called certain people to be in charge. This is not safe. In some ways, it's not even sensible. But it is the work of the elder. And that's my first point. 
Ruling well begins with the gospel. You know, I would never do what I'm doing if I didn't believe that despite the dangers, despite the potential embarrassment, despite the fact that it's often lonely, that God has worked a miracle in my life. I couldn't do it if I didn't believe that. That I actually have something to say. I have something to say. He has, in the words of David, put a new song in my mouth. And it's not me. It's him. It's his message. You want an elder, you want a leader who rules well, who has been given that song and is ready to sing it in the midst of the family of God. So the second point, then, is about the organization of the church. So good leadership in the church supporting good leadership in the church or the God's plan for leadership in the church includes support, honorable support. And this is that theme of honor that I began in, in my introduction, that, that fit, sort of the mini point there about family. Honorable support. Honorable support. I, uh, in my first church, everyone called me Pastor Henry or Reverend Henry. And the idea was that in, in using that term, they were honoring me. I didn't feel honored. And so there was a mini battle that ensued. No, call me Phil was my, my un... I, every time I was told that, I said, no, call me Phil. No, call me Phil. And so eventually, they did. But there's a a tension here, isn't there? You can honor someone so much that you essentially push him out. I'm the only one wearing this black thing. So there's a sense that I'm very different. and, And that pushing me out can feel like not very honorable. Not letting me in. So the calling me Phil comment was all about, no, call me Phil. I want in. I don't want to be out. I want in. And yet there is something to those outward elements, isn't there? I've, I've sensed and seen that there's a generational divide here, that, that people that are older than me tend to very much appreciate those outward honorable qualities. And people my age and younger, tend to that tends to not be as important to them. It's an observation. Honorable support. So I think the honor, I thought this was funny. If you look at the text, it says that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. I like that. (laughs) Double my paycheck. (laughs) Polly told me to say that. No, there's debate about what this double honor means, and this is actually quite a complicated passage. I'm not going to delve into it. I'd be happy to afterwards if you want to talk about it. But I think it means not only honor him with remuneration. I think there is a, there's, a, there's a money aspect here. Uh, I, in preparing for the sermon, I read a story about a man who was given eggs and cheese by one of the farmers of the church. As, and, and he was very thankful until he realized that that was then deducted from his pay. <laughs> so 
No, honor well. I think, I think, yes, supporting the pastor, generously supporting the pastor is important. I don't think the pastor needs a, a jet, okay, personal jet. Although I did read about that. There's a, a pastor in Nigeria who $4 billion in, in, in Nigerian currency, whatever that translates to, $4 billion on a jet. I don't think that's what this means, the double honor idea, honor well. But neither do I think that he's a servant of Jesus, Jesus was poor, the pastor should be poor too. Which isn't actually that uncommon to hear. So remuneration is involved there, but then just the honor of of being taught of appreciation, and I did touch on that last week with all of my comments about dark chocolate. The, the honor of appreciation, showing your gratitude, showing your appreciation, honor, and, and doing it in a way that, that translates for your pastor, that he can feel the love, okay? Honor. How about the honor that is due to the one who teaches and preaches by following the teaching. Following the teaching. I was thinking, I've been focusing on pastors, but we have elders too. Good men, I'm talking about the organization of the church and the honor relates to the organization of the church. Good men... Um, we need a variety of personalities and leadership in the church. Sometimes I've gotten the sense that in the PCA, this is a criticism of my own denomination, in the PCA, elders tend to be managers, not leaders. And they tend to be of a certain personality type. And... Um, that doesn't usually include an artistic personality. So I think we need all kinds of men on the leadership board, all personality types. We need artists and doctors and lawyers and teachers and men that work with their hands and men that work with their brains blue collars and white collars, both, that the men on the board need to reflect the people that you are trying to reach, the mission of the church. This is about being a missional church. God's plan for leadership includes an organization, a structure, an honor system that's in place that that recognizes and honors men of all different gift mixes and not just a certain type. I think we tend to honor intellectuals in the PCA. And we have such, it's almost like in order to be an elder in the PCA, you, you don't have to have gone to seminary, but that'd be nice. You know, and so the message is sent, a common, regular gospel spirituality, masculine gospel spirituality isn't enough. I understand the importance of trained ministry, I understand the importance of knowing the doctrines of the church so you can defend them. 
But we only need like one of those guys on the board. You know, Ninja Jones, take that guy out right now, please. You know, the guy in the movie who's like this, and like 16 men fall. So this involves honor. Honor the men of the church by being clear about your values as a church. I've been talking about values right now. What are the values of this congregation? What is the mission of this congregation? How are we doing in accomplishing that mission? What, what role does each board member play in advancing the values of the church? Hopefully, they're not all advancing one of the values and leaving the others neglected. We all can't value the same thing at the same time, and we all can't be equally good at all things. I think this means honoring your elders meaning, means having good policies. You know, there's nothing more frustrating for a guy than being asked to do something and being given no help to get it done. It's horrible. So we need policies. So we need a policy man on the board, somebody who's good at articulating these policies that we can follow. I guarantee you that's not every man in here does not have that gift. In fact, some men see the word policy and they run screaming in the other direction. But when we have good policies, we honor our elders. We enable the church to call good men into service because we've created a climate of leadership where things get done. We don't, in our meetings, wind up talking about the same issues month after month after month after month. Honor. And you say, well, that's their business. No, it's not. It's your business. You called them. You have, you have said, this man would be a great leader in our church. So make it your business to make sure that you honor him by encouraging him. You don't have to be an elder to write policies. And honor them financially. Marty asked me to put this in, <laughs> that elders can be paid. It's okay if you pay your ruling elders. Um, I think particularly those if you have a ruling elder that's very gifted in teaching and preaching, pay him. I think that's what this text is saying, honor. Honor them by by not calling them elder in a way that distances their ministry from your life, your personal life. Elder Beal, Elder Riggleman. If that's a distancing maneuver, don't do it. Honor them by welcoming them into your life, asking them to guide you, looking for support. Honor them. Honor them with your lifestyle and honor them with constructive criticism. Honor me with constructive criticism. Honor your pastor. Give him feedback on the sermon. I didn't like that one. You know, that's, it, it's good for me to hear that. I need to know that. I don't like to hear it, but I need to know it. I have more to say. I, we're, we're, we're continuing here. Let me try to be brief on this third point. But um, it is important 
God's plan for church leadership means that, that we need to make repairs when the organization breaks. These policies that I mentioned, when they're broken, when they're not followed, the repair of the plan for church leadership needs to be diligent. It needs to be faithful. It needs to be consistent. It needs to be bold at times. You know, one of the main reasons we have elders in the church are to resolve our disputes. We're bickering with each other just like brothers and sisters. You know, he took my car, you know. No, I didn't. All right, what's going on? Give me the car. Do you want me to throw it away? Okay, can't you play nicely? I mean, we're like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds most of the time. <laughs> These are the principles of church discipline. Discipline means disciple, it means training. Your elders need to train you. So call men, pastors, and elders who will train you, who will teach you, who will shepherd and guide you, train you. I'm disciplining you right now. I'm telling you some things that you've known, some things that you didn't know. The things that you know, God's idea there is to remind you so you get better at it. The things that you don't know, you need to learn so that you can be prepared to understand them more. This is discipline. It's teaching. It's soft discipline, but it is discipline. I was reminded by uh, Dick in, a, in an email I sent in talking about this sermon this week about the purposes of church discipline. Do any of you know them? There are three technical purposes for church discipline. Correction, for, what I'm talking about, formal correction in the church. Number one, it's for the glory of God. Number two, it's so that, and it was in this passage, so that they may fear. Did you see that? I didn't like this verse. Twenty, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So it, it shocks the congregation. When you've got a, this text, by the way, is dealing with church discipline of an elder. Now, church discipline in general you find in Matthew 18, and that's a whole other sermon. But this, this passage, I believe, is dependent upon Matthew 18. It's, it has it in mind. So you need to reference that to understand my remarks here. But in the presence of all, that either means in the presence of the entire board, or I think more likely in the presence of the entire congregation. Call the elder out in the presence of all. After you've gone through your policies, okay, you cannot accuse an elder without witnesses. And by witness, I don't mean someone who saw the event, but someone who... In, in a sense of a jury, an impartial observer who sits in and listens to the case and says, that makes sense to me, or no, this sounds like a railroad job. There was a pastor who went on vacation, came back to find out that he'd been fired. How's that? Well, why? He asked. Well, because so-and-so said you did such and such. Oh, is that right? Where's the trial? Where's my chance to face my accuser? Where's the witnesses? Where's the policies and the procedures here? 
honor the elder with these good policies. See, the first layer of discipline is, is giving protection to your elders so that they don't get accused wrongly. But then if it's right, rebuke them in the presence of all so that there may be fear. So the glory of God is one purpose of church discipline. Fear in the congregation, or we might say the, um, the purity of the congregation. And then the third reason to win him back. This gets back to the gospel. The church isn't here to punish. The church is here to restore. And even in a grievous sin, the goal is restoration. Even when an elder or a pastor has sinned grievously, the discipline that's administered is to bring him back. Back to Christ. Back to the promises that he once believed. This idea of no partiality is important. Did you catch that? Keep these rules without prejudging. You want an elder that's unbiased, that isn't swayed by this people group in the church, say the young moms or this people's group in the church, the retirees or this people's group in the church, the college students. You want an elder that is impartial, impartial, without prejudging. You know, if you've ever been on a jury, they ask you some questions. Do you think you can hear this case without partiality? I can. I can hear the case. I know the rules. Innocent until presumed, or presumed innocent until guilty, proven guilty. Can you do that? Can you take yourself out of your politics out of your preferences, out of your hobbies, and impartially move amongst the people of God, listening to them, seeing where they are in their faith, blessing them, praying for them, and encouraging them in the Lord. That's the kind of leadership that we need, and that kind of leadership should be honored. Too often we honor the wrong things, and it kills our churches. It destroys them. Okay, some applications. Church discipline begins with good organization. If you don't have bylaws, if you don't have policies, if you don't have procedures, if you're not familiar with them, it's just a matter of time before the thing goes boom. So have good policies. That's important. Good leadership is all about relationships. So make sure your elders have a relationship with you. Don't just leave it up to them. And insert here my sermon on a gospel-liberated fellowship. Good leadership means not proliferating the rules about what's acceptable and what's unacceptable Christianity. We're going to stick to the basics. That's why I began with the gospel this morning. How about this as an application? A family that prays together stays together. A church that prays together stays together. The prayer meeting is a bygone practice amongst Christians. It should not be the case. We need to pray together. It's hard when you're dispersed all across the city. So we have to work extra hard in this particular congregation to pray together. Here's an application. Who's your favorite pastor? 
If you're new to the faith, you might not have one. But think in your mind, who's the most influential pastor you've ever had? I bet he still speaks. I bet you still hold up every sermon you hear to one degree or another to that favorite minister, favorite elder. It's hard to live up to that. One application might be, as, as my mother taught me to sing, make new friends, but keep the old. Okay? We don't have to let go of the past, but we can't live in the past. God is preparing a new pastor for you, new elders for you. Let go of the past. Let go of its, of its grip on you. Remember it, appreciate it, celebrate it, but then move on because God wants you to grow and he's going to use a different person to help you do that. How about this application? What pastors have you seen crash and burn? It's probably their own fault. But were the expectations so high for that pastor that he could never possibly live up to it? How could have discipline helped that man before things got as bad as they did? Where was the church in idolizing the ministry, right? And idolizing the sermons. Where was it all along in, in not just taking his word for it that he was doing fine? Have you seen, here's another application, have you seen pastors mistreated in the past? I mentioned the pastor that was fired while he was on vacation. How's that? How's that for the family? Hey, Dad, you're fired. What if my wife came home and I said, Honey, you're fired. What? How have you seen ministers mistreated? What does that do for young men entering into the ministry? Is it inspiring? Have you recovered from seeing a pastor mistreated? Maybe you were so fed up and sick of what you saw that you've never come back to church. I'm done. If that's the way they run things in the church, I'm out of here. Maybe we need to let go of that as well and come back to something I said in the beginning, either part of the problem or part of the solution. The family of God is what it means to be a Christian. There are no lone rangers out there. Do you have a pastor? Is there someone you're accountable to in your Christian life? What are you doing to honor that person? Is there any hope for the church? Is this idea of family hopelessly outdated? I don't think so. But it is impossible apart from God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us, teaching us. Thank you that we all are taught this morning. My instruction has come this week and last week as I've been in your word and praying about and studying these things. Others, Lord, have been instructed this morning and will meditate and cogitate and chew on these things the rest of the day and the rest of this week. Would you, I hope, Lord, have inspired us this morning, encouraged us, challenged us. 
to more fully walk in your ways. These are difficult teachings. These are neglected teachings. Lord, dust them off for us. Revive us. Send revival to your church. Send revival to the pastors and the elders. Wake us up. Stir us. Make us, Lord, uh, champions for Christ in whatever place in the family we have. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.